Welcome to the Keyforge Premier League podcast, where we will focus on the people of the community that are contributing to the growth of our sport. Get inside perspectives on the reasons they play Keyforge, what they think about the community, and various other sidebars and hijinks. Be sure to go to the website, www.keyforgepremierleague.com, to find everything you need to know to get started on your path to the top. Thank you again for tuning into the podcast. And if you have any inputs or requests, please reach out to us at keyforgepremierleague at gmail.com. And we will do our best to represent the demand of the player base. The Keyforge Premier League is by the community for the community. Welcome to Keyforge Premier League weekly news um, this is the podcast series where basically we come and just talk to you about things that we've seen witnessed try to help you guys get some new uh, traction on the game if you guys are still checking it out or learning or trying to learn um, and for veterans maybe we can just poke some kind of thought process that gets you thinking about the game a little bit differently um, there's always different levels of goals and I have brought back with me again Drazcor. he's back for his what is this your fifth week now yeah yeah number five I think he likes it. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of fun. It is kind of fun. This is, I've never done anything like this before, so it's it's uh, I don't know, it's having a good time. Yeah. So I was actually um, talking to um, a sailor from Georgia named Zach. That's who it was, by the way. And uh, congratulations on him because he just made chief select. That's a big deal in the Navy. Um, he basically was a first class petty officer, and now he made it to the ranks of chief. Um, and he's going to be going through chief's initiation and stuff soon and whatnot. But um, cool. You know, co- cool deals for him. Um, congratulations to him. But he's a somewhat new Keyforge player, and he's trying to get the people on his submarine to basically uh, start playing Keyforge. So I sent them a package, um, 12 decks and a bunch of tokens, metal keys, metal tokens, and all that, um, to get them started and stuff. But um, he was asking me um, about you know some of the strategies and stuff that I go through. So I brought this to Drascore, and I said, hey, for this episode, why don't we focus on um, card interactions and basically how you win games, right? And um, so so Drascore um, took upon this request from Zach, and basically, so this one's going out to you, buddy, um, and we are going to do a whole episode based on this. So I'm going to let Drascore take the wheel, and I'm going to kind of do my, uh, my devil's advocate here, and we are going to get through this and talk about it. So Bring us in on what what we're doing there, uh, Professor Drascore. Professor, wow, there you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm promoting you. <laughs> uh, nice, nice. Yeah, so so card interactions, I think, was was part of the quest, and um, you know, why, why are card interactions important? Why are they good? What kind of interactions should you be looking for? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, you know, I think if you think about why why are they important, you can think that there's there's probably there's definitely a limited number of cards out there that are quite good on their own, but but almost all cards get better when they're played with other cards, right? So, um, imagine some of the just the straight steel cards or the straight ember cards, like your your Ronnie Risk Clocks, your Urchins that do some stealing, your Dust Pixies that just give you ember, you control the weak that force your opponent to a turn. Those are those are just good, but but most cards. Are can be better or worse based on what they're played with, and even some of these good cards here that we mentioned, they can be way better when you add in additional cards. Is it just additional cards, Professor, or is it also the timing of the card when it's played? Oh well, definitely, definitely that as well, right? So, so <laughs> certainly, your Ronnie is 
is a great example, right? So if your opponent has um, more ember, right? They have at least seven ember, you can steal two. Uh, but if they have less than seven, you're only stealing one. So clearly Ronnie is better when you can you can steal more, right? It's perfect when they're at seven, right? Because then you, you knock them off a key, bring them down to five. So if my, um, if my opening hand has like too much to protect, two Ronnie's, um, and whatever else, like maybe another Shadows card or whatever, do I mulligan that hand or do I keep that hand? Most of the time, I would mulligan that hand because, uh, you know, not knowing the rest of your deck and sort of what your otherwise your game plan is, your opponent's probably not going to have a lot of Ember at that point. So your your Ronnie's or your Urchins are coming down and doing nothing. They're just bodies on the field, weak bodies on the field, not really not really doing anything for you. Right. And that's TMTP, that too much to protect, which steals down to six. You, that's the card you want to lay in wait, and you want to use it at exactly the right moment. Yeah, all joking aside, like uh, there are games that you, there part of this sequencing of learning your card combinations and how your interactions work and stuff like that, is knowing what cards are early game cards and what games are late game cards. And like we're talking about too much to protect, definitely a, a super awesome late game card, right? But like you have just as many awesome cards that are early game, like Eureka, like say where you basically get three ember and draw two cards because you're archiving two cards, right? So there's like a lot of cards that are situational to this and how they go. And then when you're looking at the flow of a deck and how fast the deck is gonna play for you um drawing cards archiving cards all these things they're all very key interactions that you want to have early on because it's giving you the most options to play out of your 36 cards in your deck so um like the number one thing in all of Keyforge is absolutely how fast you can get through your deck. Um, it's not the end all be all, and that's not anything that we say is never the end all be all. There's always exceptions to decks that play a little bit slower, but they get they get their traction and they get better or whatever else. But that's why you have to play the decks. But in general, you want to be coming out and playing and drawing as many cards as you can to be able to have as many options as possible. And you want to be playing those options. And when you're playing those options, you want to be generating amber because that's the aggressive action in the game so right right and even even if you imagine a deck that has basically no efficiency right has no extra draw no archive none none of that you you still want to be playing as many cards as you can right on average playing you know four cards out of a house is better than playing three two or one card out of a house because you're getting more uh out of that turn plus you're getting more cards to then do something more the next turn so it's uh it is pretty important. Yes, it is. And um, going first and going second with a deck is also another tricky proposition because it really depends on what you're doing with your deck and how many cards you want to play on your first. Like, I think most combo decks want to go second because you don't want to be stuck with playing one card and letting your opponent set stuff up. You'd rather have them play one card and then get to your combo, like setting up your combo with more cards like off of the run. Whereas if you're playing like a real aggro heavy deck, like you might want to be playing first because you want to set, you want to basically weed out like the the, the weaker house to get to your stronger house to be able to play your combo, like your your amber rush like more effectively. So, but these are all like hearsays. Like it all depends on how your deck plays and stuff like that. So with that said, right, um, right. I remember pretty early I read somewhere that. Uh, you know, people who played second won more often. Um, I don't know if that was actually true, but but it felt felt true on average. But certainly, one of the things when you're testing your deck, you're trying to learn your deck, figuring out you know what it would rather do is, is one of the interesting things that uh, um, that you should look into. Yeah, absolutely. And then like uh, 
Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with that, like, uh, to a certain degree. But like I said, um, I think there are decks that want to go first. Like, they're going to play, sure. like, a Eureka and just end their turn. Yeah. Like, or whatever. Like, if you're having that kind of logo see like, interaction or start, like, if, playing, if I'm playing, like, three eclectic uh, inquiries, like, I, I don't mind going first. That's, like, I'd rather be going first. Because I'm going to mm -hmm. be able to put cards into the into the archive early, and I'm going to draw more cards on my first turn that way. I'm going to get and be in a better spot to react to whatever they do on their first, you know, their one B turn. So um, I don't know. It really depends. I think so. I think so. So, so um, <laughs> all right. So so interactions, right? So I think uh, most cards, I think by default, will interact with other cards, and really looking at a card, thinking about it, understanding how it interacts with other cards is important. Because uh, that can make the difference between, is this a mediocre card, a good card, or an amazing card in a deck? Right? So you think about something like Dark Amber Vault. Right? Dark Amber Vault's pretty, pretty popular right now. It's an artifact. comes out every time you play a mutant creature, you draw a card, and all, all of your friendly mutants get plus two power. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty good. Um, it's okay if you have like four mutants in your deck. It's really, really good if you have 12 mutants in your deck. And you really want to play it before you play out most of those mutants, most of the time, because the draw is often the best part from that uh, from that card, best part of the effect. So playing it later is less good. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, looking at these cards and figuring out, is this a card I want to play early? Is this a card I want to play late? And how does it interact with other cards in the deck is, is really important. Yeah. And um, just to go back on the speed point, I had to do some quick math to be able to uh, remember what Ooh. this was. But What you got? Um, if you have 36 cards in your deck and you draw six to play on your six, right? Like, and like, basically, if you're playing a total of um, only six cards Per, if you're playing, able to play all six cards from your hand every time, obviously, you go through your deck in six turns. That's super fast if you can average mm -hmm. six, right? If I can only average playing five per turn, I'm go I drop down to, it takes me seven turns. But when I hit four, it goes to nine. When I hit three, it goes to 13. When I hit two, it goes to 18. And obviously, if you can only play one, it's 36. So it's like your average amount of cards you play per turn is basically it scales very heavily like if you're at three you're basically taking 13 turns to go through your 36 card deck right that takes quite a while and that doesn't get you to where you want to go whereas if people are drawing four or playing four per turn they're, they're basically getting through like in nine turns so that's five turns where they're going to have way more information than you and way more effect, way more ember, probably. Right. right. If they, if they've turned through all that. So, um, so yeah, that, that that speed's good and important. And Dav, Dav can really help with that when you you've got a whole bunch of mutants. Mm -hmm. it doesn't help as much when you only have a, a couple. Right. Dav is a very dangerous card if it's in the right kind of deck. So, like, uh, there's mm -hmm. definitely uh, an interesting an interesting role there as far as that goes because um, I've seen some of the Dav decks out there that are just absolutely insane. And um, I know that there's people that are actively looking for them and stuff. So you're going to see them at high level tournaments um, and you're going to see DAV with um, auto compiler and, uh, and or uh, auto encoder, sorry. And, um, you know, you're going to get this crazy amount of like speed that is very hard to match. And then if that speed has any kind of amber, amber denial to it, then you're going to have even bigger problems because now not only are they 
drawing like 10, 10, basically 10 cards and playing 10 cards a turn, but they are also going to be taking stuff away from you because they're drawing all their answers, right? They only have to have so many answers in their deck if they're playing like 10 to 10 to 12 cards per turn. Like obviously if it's 12 cards per turn and three turns are through their whole deck. So, and it's not uncommon if you have like a Professor Torado with a Fandangle set up and you go, like your deck is going to draw every turn. So you're going to be playing all your, your whole deck and playing up to 12-ish cards per turn. So um, it, it's, it's problematic, honestly. Like I think that Dav might be as unfair in the right circumstances, it's, it's as unfair as library access used to be. So mm. um, it can be. You can draw a ton of cards. I mean, there, there's a bunch of ways out there to just draw a ton, a ton of cards. Um, it's probably it's it's not as easy as the the old um, library access Nepthy Seed used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, um, there's still there's still a bunch of ways to do it, and I think somewhere down in my notes somewhere we've got some other other ways to try to do stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but uh, but let's talk about some other types of interesting interactions you can look for. So so another type of inter- interesting interaction is looking for cards to pair up, right? So mm-hmm. something like a shadow self, right? So shadow self basically protects another creature, absorbs the damage from uh, the creatures next to it, right? So if you think about that cre- that card in itself, it, it's good, but it's really, its value is dependent on what you put next to it, right? So if you put something like an Ember Imp or a Witch of the Eye or maybe a John Smith next to it, these real high-value cards, or you get a ton of value. What's that? Or a Restrictor Guntus. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Props out to um, Zach and his deck. <laughs> oh, he's got a Restrictor Awesome, awesome. Great card, great card. Yeah, so so make it way harder to kill that Restrictor because, you know, you're, you're, your opponent's going to be gunning for that card. Um, whereas if you just happen to play out whatever whatever's in your hand at that moment with Shadow Self without really thinking or planning ahead or crafting your hand, you can end up putting like a Niffleape or Dexter or something, Raiding Knight, something not so great next to it and not really getting that much value out of that card that would otherwise be be really powerful. So, um, so that's another type. And then, and then there's the... Uh, situations where you want to have a you have a card where it's hey I want to have not just pairing up but I want to have a series of cards with it so something like a hunting witch right so hunting witch basically whenever you play play out a creature you get an ember mm-hmm. so you want to have that hunting witch on board when you're about to play a whole bunch of of creatures right so putting them next to that shadow self maybe gives you a chance to to then continue to play into future turns but when you're playing a hunting witch, you really, really all you can bet on is what you can do right now. So build up that that hand, play out those those four or so untamed creatures. Maybe a duck's uh, dust pixie in there. You get a whole bunch of ember. And it's another and this good is, interaction. Yeah, and this is why Logos goes really well with untamed in that situation because it gets mm-hmm. you the ability to archive all your untamed. So that way you can have the one big explosive turn when you drop the hunting witch. And normally you're going to be like hunting witch, pixie, 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 or hunting witch, like full moon hunting witch, pixie, pixie, into Choda or key, a key charge, etc. So mm-hmm. um, there's like all kinds of different ways for untamed to win in, in, in a burst. And um, 
having logos with untamed is, is, is a very common thing to see because the logos will enable your untamed to be more explosive so these are the kind these are the kind of um, parallels that we definitely like to see in the game whereas like these and logos are the two strongest houses in the game and they both it, they they both embody different types of decks, right? Like Logos is good all around, and it's really good for speed. Anything that goes for speed or winning with, like combo orientations or like things that you have to set things up for, like Logos just helps that a lot. And like Logos is good by itself, but this is where it really is the all stars when it's aiding another house to win. Um, and then Dece is kind of the opposite of Logos in the sense that instead of like enabling your deck to win, it's disabling your deck to your opponent's deck to, to to play so it's basically buying you time by slowing them down and um it does a really great job of it. so um mm -hmm. that's why i would mm -hmm. say those two those are the two houses i think that are the the the, the core of almost any decent deck is going to have like a dece or a logos kind of interaction to it like um for a long time now like dece and logos have been the best houses in, in the game and they've always had another house that kind of goes along with it, whether it be shadows or untamed or, or whatever. Um, those two houses yeah, certainly, together are dangerous. Certainly, they've been the most consistent throughout the sets, right? So you know, some of the other houses can can do stuff in mm -hmm. in various oh, yeah. sets, but um, but yeah, like on average, absolutely, those mm -hmm. two those two are rock stars. Yeah. So, so actually, so you. you you started to go a little bit into uh, how can you create more interactions, right? So if you imagine you're just grabbing your hand of cards and you're just playing whichever you have the most of, whichever house you have the most of in your hand, in some ways you, you sort of just have to get lucky to to get the most um, uh, the most out of um, most out of your interactions. So there's a bunch of different ways that you can go about setting up those those cool interactions between cards so um so so well so one of the things is really just uh, selecting your house carefully right and yes most of the time you want to pick the, the house you have the most cards of but but maybe if you you know if you're two 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 hey maybe you leave you leave those pair of cards hoping that you're going to draw into something better and that is going to pair more nicely and you play one of the other two even if even if those, I don't know, those discards are uh, marginally better this turn, if you wait, if you know your deck and you wait for for a combo, um, maybe you'll have an even better this turn next turn and you play Untamed or something instead. Yeah, when you can so, see when you can see where your opponent is going with their deck, then it's you know whether the chain is worth it or not. Like if I have too much to protect mm -hmm. in my hand, and you're at one amber and you're not really pushing or have a way to push hard, then playing it for the amber and just getting it out of the way initially is better than taking the chains for the turns waiting for it to be good. But if I'm sitting on a too much to protect and you're at four amber and I know you're going to be pushing for a key soon, it might be worth taking the chain to see if you go over six and basically get the value off of the the better value off of the too much to protect. Um, but this is like what you were saying, like it comes with le learning your deck and playing your deck, practicing your deck and playing it and understanding where your deck is trying to go and what it's trying to do. And the best decks, I would argue, seem almost flawless, flawless in the, the way they flow. You're not sitting there going, I don't really know what this deck is trying to do at this point. Those are the decks that you kind of got to be careful about. And it's not that they don't have a flow. It's just that you haven't figured the flow out for it yet. So, right. Right, and that's where practice makes a big difference, right? There are definitely, if you think about holding cards, right? There are definitely decks where, you know, you almost always want to hold X. Right? I don't know, 
a gateway to disk, right? Because it's your one, it's your one and only <laughs> uh, board clear, and you're going to need it, and you don't really care about your board so much. Um, and they care about their board a lot versus another deck where you've got plenty of ways to, to handle board and just, you know, blowing up the board now is no good. It can give you three chains. You might as well just discard it. So practicing with your deck will help you understand uh, and reading your deck list and just thinking about the interactions will really help you understand that. Yeah, because again, your um, speed, the speed of your deck goes big into that decision, right? Like if you have a gateway mm -hmm. to disc early in the game and you know it's your only big out, like you have to hold it and chain yourself because you don't have mm -hmm. the time to redraw it, right? Whereas if you're towards the end of your deck and you draw it and you haven't had to use it yet, you might want to just get rid of it and like recycle it because you know you're going to cycle. Or if you have a good amount of logos and you can cycle back through, you cycle through, you know you're going to get back to it in a timely manner. And the amount of speed that it takes for you to get to those is... is uh, uh, is crucial and the only way you learn these interactions is by playing your deck <laughs> so mm -hmm. we have we have a common theme so far about how you understand de what decks do and what how good they are and that is play your deck <laughs> absolutely absolutely and, you know, and i have so much fun just playing a deck over and over again like and trying to to see what i can do with it trying different things hey this time i'm when i draw xyz I, i'm just gonna hold it Right, unless it's silly, like totally silly, but I'm just going to try it and see what happens. And you learn about that, even if it's not, you know, for that particular game. Maybe you feel like I don't know if it's the right thing to do. You try it and you'll learn, and then and then you'll know more for the for the next game. Yeah, I agree. Cool. <laughs> so archiving. So you mentioned archiving before. This is maybe one of the easiest ways to to set up a a good interaction, to set up a good combo. Uh, right, just taking that card, putting it in your archive, and and then being able to pull it out at the right moment. Uh, it's important, right? It's one of the reasons you mentioned before that that uh, logos is so consistently good, is because there's just so many ways to archive in logos. Right? Occasionally, some other houses will have ways to archive. Right? Uh, Starlines has a little, Shadows has a tiny bit. Right? But um, um, you know, partnering some real interesting cards with logos makes makes playing them at the right time easy yep and archiving is is good for people that don't understand the principle here again the idea is like if you have six cards in your hand right and you have a lab work you can go into logos play your two logos cards say and there's two from a different house you play your lab work you get the amber pip off your lab work so you get to draw a card for the lab work that got played but then you're also getting to put one of these cards into your archive which allows you to draw a second card so you're basically drawing an extra card there and you're storing a card to be played and drawn later so it's like it's not exactly a two for one type deal but it's definitely like a one and a half a solid one and a half in in, in essence right because you're basically get basically setting a card aside to draw an extra card which is huge um when we talk about that tempo and stuff like that but then like cards like sloppy lab lab work are even better because you're getting deeper because we talked about that card last week and why is it better well here's a perfect example of where i have a two two a two 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 hand right and if i'm only playing two cards a turn it's going to take me 18 turns to cycle through my deck so now if i play lab work i'm playing three so it's going to only take me 13 but now if i play sloppy lab work i play the two cards i discard a card and i archive a card i'm at the rate of four which will get me through my deck in nine turns so there's the math and the idea behind it for the algorithms and stuff. And I know for the guys that are from the sub community, if you're listening, math is like your favorite thing in the world, probably. So there you go. <laughs> but anyhow, there you go. archiving is archiving is the, the the number one thing that new players undervalue. Like uh, in my opinion, archiving is huge. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I know I, one of the things I really undervalued was archiving seemed good, but I knew discarding to me, I didn't understand why that was so important early on. Mm-hmm. And uh, But it's just like you said, in that example, there is a perfect example. Um, oh, so another way to create cool combos and also play more cards is house cheating. Right, So house cheating really opens up new opportunities for interaction that you you wouldn't have had before right so so if we go back to the hunting witch example we had before uh maybe you have a deck that's got yeah maybe it's got some untamed creatures but maybe you got a whole bunch of logos creatures and maybe you got a phase shift so you can play your hunting witch out of turn play it in your logos turn and then play out all your, your, your logos hit, creatures. Hit your library access, right? <laughs> yeah, hit your library access, draw a whole bunch of cards, right? Like it could it could get real good real quick. Right. right. So um uh, and and you know sometimes sometimes those house cheats can really do the best the best sort of combos out there. Occasionally, sort of related, occasionally you get a really cool maverick that uh, has a cool combo. But uh, those are pretty rare to go hunting for so those you're sort of just lucky to get them when when you get them but uh right. look for the function of cards versus the uh the uniqueness of cards so what mm-hmm. I, I try to tell my people too is like the idea is that like there's a lot of cards that do the same kind of thing and and like so what you're really looking for is the function of those cards in the deck versus the um you know the value that you get back from them right and like what house they're in matters what where they are in the in the pool matters do they have an amber pit matters like there's a lot of cards that are super similar and some are really bad and some are really good so like it it really comes down to the amount of uh gain that you have like you'll hear me talk about attrition's and gains a lot and like uh attrition meaning that it takes away the value you have to basically give up something to get something versus like a gain where gain is me saying that like when you play a card like dust pixie you're getting a gain because you're getting a body on the on the field and you're getting two extra amber pits so that's like a two that's a two point gain for you uh, you know past what a, a normal card would give you right because every card actually gives you one gain because you're getting something for playing it whether it's a creature an action or whatever so the more things a card does for you the better that card is for you um gain wise and and likewise if you have to give up things to play a card say like a true baru where you have to give up like three amber to basically get five amber back in the long run but you, you do get a card out of it but there's a negative kind of value to it until you get to play it unless you set it up with a combo like something that would kill the true brew the turn you play it so like uh, an obsidian forge or whatever makes true brew a little bit better but it really just becomes a big mana battery at that point or an amber battery i should say sorry getting my magic yep. mixed up but, <laughs> back um, in right or ember lucian from our from our last episode right <laughs> doing something crazy like that right yeah who would play ember lucian that card is so crazy <laughs> yeah yeah so um uh, yeah play. yeah and just looking for uh, looking for those combinations, looking for those things, right? And then um, starting to think about, okay, now I've got all these interesting combinations of cards. How do I start turning this into a win condition? Um, that's that's sort of the next step, right? So, um, in you know, sometimes it's going to be from could be from a single interaction, right? Um, but often it's from it's from multiple interactions across your deck, mm-hmm. right? And um, how do all these different interactions come together, and and what can they do for you, right? So, 
So typically when you're looking at a deck, you look for you know big play cards that are more likely to trigger win conditions than others, right? Or or at least significantly change the board state, right? Or or game state in some fashion, right? So key cheats, board clears, massive draws, those can all set up things that are going to put you in a real good spot where um where your opponent maybe can't overcome you or or you burst ahead and and steal that win out from under them. So um yeah I think over time you you learn what interactions to look for and and you start memorizing oh I see this card I see this card oh those go together um but I think early on you should just you know slowly flip through the deck and just read each card and think about how it might interact with other cards and you can sort of lay them out on the table in front of you and put them next to each other and and think about it a little bit mm-hmm. uh I, I didn't do this early on and uh it uh, but over time, I started started thinking about this more and more. Yeah. Um, another thing too, you you need to take into account is how your opponent is playing, right? Like when you're looking for like things to do and how you're going to approach your turn. So like if you have an opening hand of seven cards and I have an opening hand of six cards, if I take a mulligan down to five, that shows that my first hand wasn't necessarily good, and you don't really know about my second hand, right? So there's not a lot of information to be gained there. But the truth is, is that you have the other side of that coin where let's say you have seven cards i have six cards right and then like i decide to keep my seven cards and then you keep your six cards and then in my opening hand i have ambrolution or i have punctuated equilibrium or something like that there's a very good you know chance that like psychologically that you could really tilt your opponent out because they got six hand cards that they're very happy to have right like that they're willing to start and play with right so when you play those kind of cards you instantly are taking their whole game out of whack right you're already putting them on a a somewhat of a tilt or maybe having a chance to nail a card that they thought was important enough to keep their hand for so um those are like interactions too that i don't think a lot of people often think about but like when you can get super disruptive on a person or like if you look at their deck list and you see in your opening hand you draw two control of the weeks and you see in, in, in their deck list that they have a house that you're definitely strong against and that's really weak. You just keep putting them in that house like multiple turns in a row and making them have to play it. And you know exactly the 12 cards you need to deal with at that point, right? So these are all kinds of like like psychological and like um, like well-planned uh, disruption type techniques that you can use when playing games. I don't know if you've ever thought about that very deeply, but... Um, they definitely have a place in the game. Yeah, yeah, you know, and if you can see their deck list beforehand, maybe you also know that they've got some really cool combo, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe they got, I don't know, Amphora, Capitora, and um, and Scribner, right? So they're they're just looking to um, steal all your Amber with all their capture capture icon, all their icons in general. Uh, so so. You know, maybe if they don't mulligan, you're like, oh shoot, that that means they probably have at least half the combo, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe they're not going to play the the Scrivener right away, but but maybe they're just trying to find the other half, and uh, that might that might incentivize you to do something, right? It might incentivize you to dig for something, either your your you know your one Poltergeist or or something that you can do to handle the Scrivener, um, and you might want to play a little less optimally short-term to try to get to your long-term counter uh, because you think, hey, I think they, they're going to play it pretty early and mm-hmm. uh, versus, hey, they just keep mulliganing and maybe you have more time. So this is a little bit of information you can think about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Cool, cool. 
So, so, so I thought I would um, give a little bit of an example. And uh, so I, I went back and I took a look at the very first deck that I ever played in a sealed event with. So, so I played the game quite a few times before this at this point, but this is the first time I had played like in an official event at a store. Mm-hmm. So it's back in the Coda era. And it's uh, the Misses of Spirit Field. If you want to go back and if you want to pull up that deck and take a look, it's it, it's pretty cool. It's it's, it's interesting. Um, right. So, so before we get talking about it, like the Misses of sure. Spirit Field is basically a Dece Logos Mars uh, deck that has an Arise, Dance of Doom, Gateway to Disc, Gongoozle, Tendril of Pain, Hysteria, Mind Barb, Library of the Dam, Life Ward, Charette, Drumble, and Dust Imp in Dust, which is basically saying um, lots of it, like interruption right like it has a lot of basically disruption to put the pun in but uh um and it doesn't really have a lot of creatures so it's really working on the spell slash action level right like it's working on on the uh artifact slash action level um of impact on the game and then in logos house you have two frs three effervescence principles uh fogify library access um positron bolt scrambler storm twin bolt emission dr escotera ganymane archivist akiho the adventurer and experimental therapy so here you have a really interesting dynamic in the fact that there's three effervescence principles which do chain you and um a library access which is um it's weird um but it Mm -hmm. could be very effective because you still have having the everest principles and making your uh, making both people lose half their amber to basically go down and basically um you know, reset their chance of making a key quickly. And then if you had to, you could library access into multiple Everessence principles. It's probably worth all the chains that you need to get out of that. So it's not bad. And then you do have the Archivist and the, the Kiho and stuff for a little bit of creature presence there. But again, only three creatures in that house as well. So it's a very low count there. But then you get into Mars and the Mars is like sitting on three John Smiths, a Mind Warper, a Dominator. So you'll be able to protect them both. The Ether Spider, which is super dangerous, uh, double Grabber Jammer as well. So you have tons of creatures 10 was it no it's eight creatures in in mars there um Mm -hmm. and uh you have an incubation chamber as well to find more you have crystal hive to maximize the amount of amber that you read through it and a squawker and a mating season so where the logos didn't seem so good before because of the amount of everestance principles and amber control um you now have a better set up because here what you're doing is you're using your logos and dece again to supplement your mars and your mars is your engine and like that's the thing that you need to protect and play smartly and make sure that you have your dominator with your john smiths and your mind warpers and stuff your mind warper needs to be protected because it's kind of like one of your engines your grabber jammers are, are pretty stout on their own but getting like a dominator next to a ether spider and a mind warper would be way better than just putting it next to the john smiths because the john smiths still need to enable things when they play and they can't enable each other um the john smith does not to enable um, itself so um key things to think about in this deck but these that's my general mm-hmm. quick analysis of, analysis of it and look at it um it is yeah. 17 amber control 12 creature um presence only 19 expected amber and 10 raw amber but again that's devious because of the crystal hive value and the ability to slow your opponent down with the ether spider and stuff so that's my quick analysis just looking at it. This is the first time I've looked at it. I just opened it, so I'll let Drazcore now tell his stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and, and I think you, you you did a pretty good summary there. And in, So if you imagine for a second, right, you just you just talked about all these interactions, all these interesting ways to to, to look at some of these cards, and there's a couple more things I'll, I'll mention in a moment. But imagine just playing this deck 
like a super newbie, which I was, <laughs> and you just sort of play out whatever cards happen happen to come up at the time without trying to um, think about, hey, should I mulligan for something or should I um, try to um, save something up or should I try to archive specific things? Didn't really work very well. Right? You might notice here it says one in three, right? So that very first that very first day, I I probably had one game where the things came up sort of in the right order and it worked really well and then three other games where it really didn't right um but right as you take a step back you start thinking about this deck more and more you start realizing okay well some of the best stuff in here the big bursty stuff is all in mars but it takes a lot of setup to get there um now have some things that I can set it up with, right? If I can mulligan for that incubation chamber or that library of the damned to try to start archiving away all that Mars stuff and try now, to get that it, crystal hive out early. Yeah, mm -hmm. and now you're talking about your early game engines, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, later in the game, your lockdown and your win condition in this deck is a completely different house and it's a different thing um, as far as like being able to settle in and win. But I would think because you have the Arise Drumble like with the charrette and stuff and like basically that's a way to basically edge out your opponent as far as the um, keeping them off and basically defensively and then getting to your your third key while denying them their other key. But the the Arise is huge with the Hysteria mm -hmm. and, the, and the Drumble and the charrette and having the Life Ward and the Dust Imp is pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, and you can... You can arrive. And the cool thing here is you got options with the arise, right? So you got the gateway, yeah. the the life word. You got the arise, right? So you can really you can clear board. You can lock things down, and depending on the game state, you can decide whether you want to. Uh, you know, if you're in a little bit of a bad spot, you can arise the drumble charrette dust imp, right? In order to um, keep keep your opponent off off their win, or if you've got a little bit more time, you could. You know, all that value you just got off Mars, you can arise that all back and then start playing all your Mars stuff out again next turn if you have more time. And those effervescent principles, they help you generate that time, right? So you can hold your hold your opponent off longer to do the Mars thing, which is a little slower, right? That that Mars stuff doesn't trigger fast. Um unless you play them out and play the mating season. But but otherwise you you need a couple turns to really get that going. Once it does start going, you can you can do real well. But there's a whole bunch of tools in here uh, to use at the right moments to 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 do what you want with this deck. But if you just sort of play out the cards as they come and not really think through the interactions, well, you're going to go one and three like I did early early on with this deck. So uh, it's kind of a cool one. It's kind of a fun one. Yeah. You have the Scrambler Storm for Disruption as well in Logos with uh -huh. the Effervescence Principle. So there's, there's a lot of cool things going on in this deck. But this is a good example of, like, you have to plan and route your decks to know what you're playing for. Because, like, if you chase down and you're just like, oh, my God, like, what am I doing here? Like, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious in this deck that you need to go Mars because of the amount of creatures in the Mars house versus the other two houses. You only have three of each. But um, mm -hmm. and there's not enough raw amber to really push another house. And then Deese is really saying, I'm a mid to late game house. Logos is saying I'm a mid to late game house, like um, unless you like draw the library access with the right kind of cards early. And then mm -hmm. Mars is just saying, get me on the board as soon as possible and put that get that crystal hive in motion, you know, and like get yourself moving. So mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of a lot of good things that come out of that. And like um, mating season is an odd card, like uh, it's uh, going to give you a certain amount of value. Um, but um, 
Yeah, it's definitely one of those cards where um, it's you've got to play this deck a bunch of times to figure out what to do with it. And this is an attrition uh, card for me, right? Because like mm -hmm. for every card that you put back, yes, you get an amber, so it kind of breaks even. But at the same time, you have to replay that card now, and it goes back into your deck as a draw. So like that's a uh, mm -hmm. that's actually slowing your engine down quite a bit as far as like your speed goes, because you're basically regurgitating cards that you've already played. And yes, you're getting an amber off of them, but you could be reaping with those creatures just as well, and that's why it's not the best. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and you know sometimes it's going to be a good closer. Right, because you reap with them, you get a bunch of ember, then you shuffle them back in. If they don't have a too much protect or an effervescent principle, now you just got a ton of ember at that end, and you've you've locked it down. But but right, if you play it too early, then you've stalled yourself. So mm -hmm. it's an interesting one for sure. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that's cool. that's that's this deck. Um, and this is like you said, this is your first deck that you played at a. Uh... At a, vault a sealed? Yeah, at a vault no, no, just a sealed, oh, sealed... local, oh, sealed local, local sealed okay. chainbound. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Cool. no. The first, first vault tour deck was the, uh, the, the master of knock burning that, uh, uh, at least sealed wise, yeah. uh, that one we talked about before. So, but I played a lot more games by by the time we came to that. Yeah. Um, so, so, so for your, for your ideas right like for the things that you're thinking if i'm a new player um mm -hmm. what kind of level of play am i expecting you to be like what am i expecting you to be able to play and stuff like that that really comes with your experience and how much you've played other games and things like that i think because like you know certain people are going to pick up this game and they're going to fly with it because they've been in card games for a long time and it's just basically the same kind of thing you just have to figure out how you win and then make the most you know set up the right engines to make the best of your engines right and, and win with those engines um, and then there is, uh, you know, other people who are going to pick up the game and they're going to need a more binary type deck, right? And what we mean by binary, it's basically like I play cards, I get cards, I get value, right? And those are kind of like the rush decks and why I think rush decks are somewhat familiar and so much, somewhat easy for you to teach new players. Like when I had my son, I gave him a, a deck called B Parmesan, um, the Admiral of the Grey Palace. And that deck was basically one that has... Um, like time, you know, time traveler and a lot of pips basically, and like has some, you know, some forms of a disruption, but it also has like a pretty good amount of amber generation through uh, untamed. So like he was able to basically drive and just basically punch and pull what I call a punch and pull, a very binary. I basically told him just make as much amber as you can every turn, and if you can't make a ton of amber, then steal like you know find ways to stop their amber or get amber back. Like and it's basically always be moving amber. As long as you're moving amber, you can you can win. And um. The first event I ever went to that I that I won at my local store, my son was in second place. I had to play him in the finals, <laughs> and he almost hmm. beat, he almost beat me. I just got a very timely That's fun. I got a very timely <laughs> heated disc to uh, get myself out of trouble because he was stomping me. But hmm. um, I was like, if I don't draw a key to disc right now, uh, Tristan, I think you're gonna beat me. And I, I was happy enough that I hit the key of disc. So I had an, I had one turn to basically get it on the board, and he couldn't deal with it. So I was able to. Uh, get the value I needed out of it the next turn and then I was able to turn the game around and come back and win but man it was super tight and um, again I played to my out because that's something as you get better you start to learn and by playing the deck the deck I was playing was called the Frightened Innkeeper of Monza Pit and I knew all my outs and I knew the things I needed to do and I knew that once I set up my Mars in that deck that I was going to win um, and uh, it was just a matter of getting there and he had got off to such a fast start with his uh, logo stuff in the time traveler combo that like uh, 
I was way behind and like I was just like if I don't clear this board and he keeps reaping I just lose like so I was very lucky <laughs> so the fun yeah. stories the fun yeah. stories you get but <laughs> yeah and that, and that's really cool that uh, you know as you and your son there uh, that that first event that that's pretty cool um, uh, so so actually you mentioned a term there which I had to learn so you mentioned uh, you know play to your out um, mm -hmm. and I so I did not come from uh, you know, a big CCG background or anything like that. Played a lot of board games, mm -hmm. so you know, understood the concept of games or whatnot, but didn't necessarily have that specific, you know, the, the specific kind of CCG type background. So, so, but play to your out, right? For new folks, that's really about hey, if you're on your your, you know, if you're on your back foot, you're 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 about to lose. You know, you don't have too many chances left. You think about well, what's left in my deck, and what do I need to draw? Like, well, next turn. If I do X, Y, Z, and I draw, you know, TMTP next turn, uh, too much to protect next turn, then I can win. Well, just assume you're going to draw that next turn, because that's like your only path to victory. And uh, sometimes you hit it, and sometimes you, you win, whereas otherwise, if you just played whatever was the best thing in that hand, but doesn't translate into a victory, that, that's not the right move. So that's, that's what playing to your outs is, is all about. Yeah, another thing that playing to your outs, playing to your outs can start on the very first play of the game because if you look at a deck, kind of like if you go back and watch the um, the AVR chronicles that I make, I made with Zach this first week, um, I was able to, you know, we're allowed to practice against each other's deck and stuff, so we knew exactly what we're getting into. And in the conversation me and Zach had early on in the in the match was I was saying, I was like, I think that his deck is great, but the deck that I have just happens to be faster and it's going to be really d difficult for him to win against. And I was like, I say, I probably win 80% of the time when I play this deck versus that deck. And um, I was like, but there are still things that that deck can do that if I get caught, I could lose and et cetera, et cetera. And then when we played, the first game was a good example of it as I didn't draw the cards I needed to draw. And so therefore when, uh, you know, like the end of the first game, I lost and it was a close still, but I still lost. Right. And then I'm mm -hmm, like thinking, mm -hmm. I'm thinking to myself, I was like, wow, maybe I sounded a bit too arrogant about this, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I, was like, I was like, I was like, that was weird. And then in the second game, it kind of went more the way I expected it to. And um, basically, I was able to, uh, you know, you know, pull out, you know, the win just by playing through attrition and getting to my routine jobs because routine jobs are definitely a win condition. And then uh, I turn around and uh, I say, I said, uh, I was like, okay, that game was awful close too. I was like, what's going on? I was like, but then again, I also mentioned that like Zach's, it's Zach's deck. So the people I practiced against don't pilot the deck as good as Zach does, right? So Zach made mm -hmm. me work hard. And I was like, it was like, basically my, my example was like, it was like basically playing the boss, boss level of that deck, right? Like, because he's the <laughs> one that knows how to play it. And uh, so that was that. And uh, it was all good and dandy. And then in the third game, my deck did what I expected my deck to do. And I just trounced him like really hard. Um, and it was more of what I had the experience of when I was practicing it against it and stuff, you know, so. Uh, the good thing is, is like, th though it shows that like, just because, of the, just because you know, you're, you know how to find the weaknesses in the decks that you play and stuff like that, it also helps, right? So that's a big deal because, um, like I said, like Zach knows how to pilot his deck better than anybody else th that I could have played against. And he made me sweat for it, right? And it, that was awesome. And it was great. And it was fun. Um, but part of it too, is just like, I just knew that my deck had an amazing amount of, uh, energy to it right like basically i was going to be able to uh you know throw at him the stuff he was going to have a hard time vault, countering right? basically yeah and basically yeah. And basically yeah. in that deck it was really m more about the uh 
it was more about the idea of um, routine jobs, having four routine jobs. Like he had no way to really deal with that if I got to them. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. By the time I get to a lot of steel. By the time you get to the third and fourth routine job, like that's just nuts, right? Because you're drawing, you're taking three and then taking four, so you're taking seven mm-hmm. amber and two cards. That's that's a huge like amount of value. Whereas like when you have just two routine jobs in a deck, like you're just taking one or two, right? So that's mm-hmm. the uh, again the the way that builds is just crazy good yeah it, it, you know and uh you, you made me think of something is where you're talking about hey your 80 percent chance based on your evaluation of the decks and whatnot one thing i will say for for new players is um don't or i recommend i guess don't get frustrated and concede halfway through the game no yes you may well be in one of those situations where you've only got a very small percentage of chance to to win um but First, it's really hard as a new player to identify that, right? So you might be, you know, the other guy might just seem confident and his his current line of play might be strong, but, uh, you know, now he's drawing all his lesser good cards. That's definitely possible. Also, if you are in that situation, playing out those last few turns, um, you can learn a lot from that and you can learn how to be a better player. And so I'd I'd say don't don't concede, you know, especially as a new player, Uh, you know, I... As you get more and more experience, yeah, sometimes you can start to see like, okay, like I'm I'm definitely screwed now. I, I did play a game the other night where I got into a bad lock with an Ember Imp where I just knew I wasn't going to be able to turn over my deck to get the cards I needed, and all the cards that were left couldn't take out the uh, the Ember Imp in order to play enough cards to to do anything else. So so I knew I was was kind of screwed. But but you know even then I, I just played it out anyway. Uh, and I lost, the but th- um, the only tried time, different things. The only time that conceding really benefits you is when you're playing in a like a, t- a full, like a very um, competitive tournament, and you have time mm-hmm. limits, and you're playing multiple rounds. Like um, then knowing when to concede is is a, is, a, is a skill because you don't want to overcommit time to a losing cause, and sometimes your opponents will drag a game just to get to that tiebreaker or whatever so you have to be wary of that so sometimes like when you know you're far gone and your deck has no outs like you're not coming back it's just better more beneficial to say i can see move on to the next game especially in adaptive yeah. i'd say adaptive it's the most crucial so yeah. Um, yeah but that's all advanced stuff for new player i would say don't worry about it <laughs> right right when we say don't worry about it we mean just don't think about it now yep. but once you put exactly. some time in you can move into that idea sure 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 all right, so we're hitting that 50-minute mark that I like to kind of start to wrap up at. So let's uh, mm-hmm. do a turbo finish here and see. Like, what do you, is there anything else you wanted to get in on this episode? I think it's been pretty deep. It's been pretty good. Um, yeah, we've had some good stuff. But um, what, anything that you wanted to get out that maybe we haven't talked about yet? There's still a pretty good amount on your list, but a lot of it. I know. Just... I had a whole bunch of examples here, but we've done a bunch of these examples. Maybe I'll just pick one or two of these things. Let's sure. see. Let's um, Let's hit something that we haven't really talked to yet. Um, how about, um, oh, you know, let's talk about, uh, Star Alliance shenanigans, if you will. That's funny. That's exactly uh, what I was some... looking at. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's a li- it's some similarities, but it's a little different than some of the other ones we've talked about. So, so Star Alliance is one of my favorites because when you get a good Star Alliance deck, there are just ways to just keep playing Star Alliance quote unquote forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Certainly an outsized number of turns compared to the other other houses in your deck right mm-hmm. so 
Um, this is by having cards like Kirby or CXO Tabor or or even Chan, Commander Chan, to play. And if to you're asking, and if you're asking which Kirby, he really means either Kirby. They're both really. It's true. That's <laughs> true. Yes, either Subject Kirby or Com Officer Kirby. Both are good. Both are very good. Yes. Um, and uh, Spears, right? Uh, Helmsman Spears, one of my absolute favorite cards to just ditch all the cards in your hand that are not. Uh, Star Alliance um, that you didn't play with either Kirby or CXO Tabor. And uh, it's also got some protect stuff. You got, you got Ingram, you got Lieutenant Krakar to to protect your your guys. Melina. Uh-huh. Yep, Melina. Melina's all right. You know, I prefer Ingram or, or Krakar, but but yeah, she'll do for sure. Put a, a Melina next to a Krakar and see what happens. Yeah, you can you can get some good uh, um, some some good hazardous action going on there. Yeah. Um, and then, so you keep playing this. How do you get extra value out of it, right? And to me, one of the one of my absolute favorite cards in the game is Transporter Platform, um, which um, basically lets you return a creature and all the upgrades on it to your hand. So if you get a whole bunch of upgrades with pips on them, and you return a creature like a Kirby or an Ingram to your hand that has a play effect, and then you replay all those or Garcia, uh, those upgrades, or yeah. Yeah, it just it gets it gets real good, and you can just keep doing, uh, keep doing Star Alliance and uh, uh, comboing those all together. So you mentioned the shenanigans in Star Alliance, and there's one major card that you haven't talked about. Do you know what that is? A major card. So I talked about it's a rare. Would it be Book of Leq? Maybe no, no, no. That's that's interesting, but it's not. That's a fun one. This is this is a very staple. Like when you remember it, you might smack yourself. This is a super okay. stable, like five-powered female. Did, oh, oh, Captain Valjerico. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, very strong female figure. It's good. Um, and uh, probably the most busted uh, card in that house, honestly. Yeah. You know, and part of the reason maybe I don't remember her quite as much is I don't have any great decks with her. I, I really need to mm. to to get one. Um, yes, I've got would... plenty of good Star Alliance, but not not with her. Yeah, she and she's an enabler for other houses. She's an enabler for these tricks. Even with transporter platform, like you're getting all your upgrade value and stuff like that, but you're also being able to center her more often without mm-hmm. having to go out of house. But then you still get to go out of house because she's in the center. Like there's just all kinds of craziness that goes with Valjerico. And when you get double Valjerico, mm-hmm. then you're talking about the, the the silly engine, like the engine that just mm-hmm. goes what? Yeah, one of my one of my losses in KFPI. If, I think it was a double Valjerico. Either it was a double or it was a single Valjerico deck that uh, just the Valjerico always came up. <laughs> yep. Um, but uh, um, she's very good. Very, very good. Yeah. So didn't mean to hijack your shenanigans, but uh, no, I don't, I don't, I don't no, believe I don't believe you can talk about Star Alliance and not give her some credit. She's very good. <laughs> it's uh, you know, tur- it's it's one of those great turn one plays, mm-hmm. right? You think about. Uh, she's awesome because you can play two cards your first turn mm-hmm. and um, really start to to lean your hand in the direction you want to go. Mm-hmm. So. And again, you get to weed your garden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just the same mm-hmm. as archiving, except instead of archiving to an archive, you're archiving into play. <laughs> so like, yeah, uh, sort of, you're sort of, giving yourself a head start <laughs> on another house, right? Yep. So it's pretty good. Yep. Cool, cool. Um, and maybe but just the last one to. To feel like it's approaching a you know a full circle is uh, 
Saurians, all the exalt, making exalt benefit you. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, exalt is kind of designed from a game design perspective to be a trade-off, right? Hey, I get this really cool thing, um, you know, making your keys cost plus three or something on Red or Golem. But, um, but the, the trade-off is I get an ember on my guy that later on I'm going to give to you mm-hmm. when you kill him. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of ways to prevent that. Right, so Ludo or Scudum uh, are great ways to instead of that number going to your opponent, right, going into the uh, into the common supply. So looking for cards like that, looking for a Senator Baracus or a Library of Polysaurus to to give yourself the those embers instead of your opponent. Um, those are other good combos you want to look for. Curious right? or Curious is a card that a lot of people don't understand, but the card is absolutely mm. insane. Because yep. of because of the way that you are able to distribute your amber on and off of uh, creatures in um, Saurian. So if you have one amber on every creature in your house and you have a Faust, you're looking great. And if they do a board wipe, then every single one of those ambers is going to move over to his biggest creature. And then you're going to get all that amber back for yourself. So that's how Curiosaurus works, if you're wondering. It's really insane. Pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, and suddenly you know you contribute, you can city state. All these things mm-hmm. are are that were already good now get real, real good mm-hmm. uh, for for across these cards. Mm-hmm. Um, also with mass mutation, now there's more and more capture. Um, it's good with with sanctum, and um, uh, so so yeah, the interactions here uh, can be can make uh, can make your Saurians real good. Really good, yeah. Um, I wouldn't have a deck that makes use of Saurian shenanigans, but uh, maybe I do. Maybe Daniela is that deck, but <laughs> she has mm. more. She has more Saurian sh- shenanigans than I know of it in m- almost every other deck I play. If, if I had a Curiosaurus, that would be perfect for me, but uh, it does not mm-hmm. have a Curiosaurus. But it does have two libraries, and it has like a bunch of capture and movement, so that's awesome for me. Cool. I, fun a ton. It was I, I won my first week of Code with her, so. Nice. Yeah. So nice. She was, there you go. Yeah, we went three zero, so it was nice. But uh, my other teammates didn't play her yet, but she's in their list somewhere. <laughs> but I told them I was like, cool. I'm definitely playing Daniela first week because she's my favorite deck to play, and I can easily do pretty well with it. So we'll see. Cool. Cool. But all right. Well, I think that's gonna be it. We're gonna wrap it up. We're hitting the almost an hour mark, and that's it. Yeah. So uh, I don't want to keep people bored and stuff. But if you have more suggestions or ideas that you want us to talk about, let Draskor or myself know, and uh, Draskor will do his homework and he'll come back with a show for you. And uh, I'll just sit Please. here and and uh, do the lazy <laughs> recording part of it, and you know, talk some trash here and there, and uh, give you guys insight. Perfect. Yeah, definitely give us feedback on what you want to hear. Um, you know, um, and and one thing one thing we were Jupiter and I were wondering about was how much do you like when we talk about specific decks? Right, this is an audio format, not a video format. So, um, is it is it not good when we read through all these various cards and then talk about certain things? Or no, you love it. You we should do more of it. That that's an interesting question that I throw out to to our audience. Yeah, I, th- I think I, I think I don't mind doing one deck per episode kind of deal, but um, we could go into decks more in depth and like just talk talk about decks kind of like we do. But uh, uh, like 
I don't know how much of a value it really is for new players that don't understand what the cards are themselves and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. but uh, like I said, we're just looking for more and more content. We'll keep trying to figure out things to talk about and to, and to just help you out. If you have questions, it's geared towards you. Um, we're here for you. So use use the format, use the uh, thing. Reach out to us on Discord uh, or reach out to us via like the K- KFPL uh, stuff. Um, Definitely. Or so far, people have found me through TCO. Like they'll play a game. Oh, yeah. Hey, I, <laughs> they'll start yeah. chatting feedback in the. Yeah. In the I'm always in hanging the, out in the log. TCO. <laughs> yeah, I'm always hanging out in TCO, <laughs> and uh, I'm always playing there in the uh, in the competitive bracket. Like uh, I play everything competitive. I don't believe in playing anything else because I don't want to whine about anything or like have people cry about what I'm playing because I really just play random stuff. I play all my worst decks and all my best decks in competitive because that's the only way you're going to really get a feeling for your deck. If you're playing against a bunch of like, uh, you know, fluff to basically make you feel good about your deck, um, you're going to be disappointed when you go play it in a real tournament. So I don't see a lot of value in that. Um, what I do see value in is playing your deck, taking notes, understanding what your deck is doing, figuring out your holes and your weaknesses, and then finding out ways to navigate around them. And if the deck can navigate around them, if you can find ways to win against your worst matchups, then that's a good thing. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I subscribe to that. I, I almost exclusively play in the competitive queue as well. Um, so I think I think it's the best way to learn. Yeah, special shout-out, too, to the uh, December 5th tournament that's coming up. It's a 10 for 10 match now. For every person that we get, $10 gets donated to uh, Borders, or, uh, sorry, Doctors Without Borders. Um, so your $10... Borders Without Doctors? Yeah, no, Borders not Without that one. Doctors, no. Just Doctors <laughs> Without Borders. And, uh, and you know, so that's going to be awesome. Plus, there's four slots open on the season two KFPL for up for grabs, too. So for season two, um, as you know, we're in the top eight now. Um for season one so we're quickly coming to an end there um very surprising brackets so far um some surprises some not so surprising so we'll see there's still two hamburg atlanteans in the uh, mix one on each side of the the bracket so we could have an all uh hamburg uh finals if they keep up so how interesting would that be (laughs) <laughs> and I know you you bet entirely on me, so I'm sorry to have disappointed you by uh, you know not going all the way. <laughs> I mean, you were like a hundred thousand to one like you know bet, so like obviously I put ten dollars on that. Like I had to. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, just kidding. I was a uh, you know actually I was very happy with uh, with how it played out. Even though I, I won, I went two and four, but. Um, Except mm-hmm. for one of the games, uh, I thought I played real well mm-hmm. in basically basically everything and had a real shot and just yep. about all of them. I think I think so. if I, I think if I from the amount of play I've seen and the people that have been playing and the values of, uh, that I've seen, if I had to rank my top three most likely to get through the top eight, like right now, I think that um, oh, that's tough. Really, I don't know. There's like four players I think right now that I think I'm I'm. Actually, no, I can't even say that. Five. There's a lot of good players in this cafe. Yeah, but if I had to pick one, if I had to pick one, and and, uh, I had to pick one, who do I pick? Oh, my God. Like, oh, they've all been playing so really good. (laughs) So hard. I'm thinking of the decks and, like, what I think is the best matchup. And I think think I'm in the back. I think I'm in the the camp that... um, I think Erie De- Erie Daly is, is is a force. I think the Hamburger Atlantean Erie Daly is a force. He's got some really awesome decks, and he's been playing lights out. So he's been good on that side. And then on the other side, I still have to stay with Rodion, even uh, Rodion, because uh, he's been playing flawless. 
So as long as his deck doesn't like just completely quit on him, like he can play anybody's deck like super well. And uh, we'll find out this week because he's playing against Kiwi, I believe, and uh, that's mm. a, that's going to be a, a great matchup. So like all the top eight matchups are great. Ugluk is still around. Um, he is the Lord of, of Adaptive. Yep. So um, from the uh, Sanctum House there. So um, and he's a good friend. Like he's a person I like a lot. I've known him since day one, and he is really really good at Adaptive, and his decks are great too. So um, but. We'll see what happens. Yeah, um, it's exciting. The last exciting eight are, are crazy. And there's just a guy playing, just got engaged. Congratulations. Mm. I'm uh, very excited about that. Um, so if he wins, I wouldn't be sad either because uh, he's a SAS player, a team SAS player, and uh, he's been playing Lights Out too. But I, I, everybody has been playing Lights Out. The only person that's in the top eight that I, I don't think I've seen enough of but I know enough about is Stealth Slash. Um, a Filipino player that was on the United Archons, and I know enough, uh, how, like, he's a very solid, solid player, but I, I don't really know his stuff as much. I haven't seen as many games of his as far as uh, where I've been able to record, because a lot of his recordings have been, like, by other people, because he usually mm. records at yeah, early. Yeah, yeah, so, but um, other than that, like, but, I mean, I know him from the UA, and I know he's quality, so he's going to be there. Um, I was sad that, that Belly got out. He was another guy. But, uh, yeah, so if you want to know more about what's going on with that, pay attention to the KFPL YouTube site. But we're for now, we are out. It's like one hour and five minutes worth of talk you listen to us, so you must like us at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Either that or you're just, just like misogynistic. But Can't find the pause button. I don't know, where is it? <laughs> yeah. yep. All right, so I hope you enjoyed our conversation, and we'll be back again next week um, with more things to talk about because Keyforge is just amazing and we're going to just keep talking Keyforge until there's no Keyforge to talk about which is hopefully never exactly <laughs> alright so keep forging your keys this is Jupiter from Manlius and this is Drascor thanks all thank you for tuning into the podcast and if you'd like to be part of the conversation, reach out to us at KeyForgePremierLeague at gmail.com and join the show. Without you, we couldn't be us. Check out www.KeyForgePremierLeague.com for links to all our content, including learn to play videos and critique on gameplays. No matter what your level is, you are always welcome. Be a part of it. The KeyForge Premier League. Get there.